Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. This is episode number 66 of The Next Track. And today, well, first I'd like to say that, as does occasionally happen, we experience some Skype issues during the recording of this episode, so I hope you'll pardon any minor audio glitches. Today we are pleased to welcome renowned minimalist pianist R. Andrew Lee. Andy, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you very much for having me. Andy, I've been a fan of your music for years now, and people who are familiar with the, the sort of repetitive minimalism of Reich and Glass, they hear your minimalism and it's not repetitive. It's not. It doesn't sound like a record skipping. Minimalism, therefore, seems to be a broader church than a lot of people would think. Can you talk about this, the difference between what we would call, let's say, classical minimalism or fundamentalist minimalism and the music you play? Yeah, so I initially got started, um, and I've talked about this before, but William Duckworth's The Time Curve Preludes were sort of my introduction into this world. And even that is sort of, you know, taking some of the ideas of minimalism, some of the compositional processes and expounding on them and introducing other influences. So it's not just sort of the pure minimalist music. And then I got interested in Tom Johnson and some longer pieces and found my way into Vondelweiser and, and discovered that there were a lot of sort of different approaches to using a limited amount of material that wasn't just either repetition or drone or something like that, that uh, space and silence or, uh, yeah, using melodies and harmonies in ways that were sort of quasi-recognizable, but, you know, had this minimalist influence. And so, that yeah, there, there have been a lot of approaches to how to use minimal materials since the 60s and 70s. Um, and, and a lot of what I do, you know, in addition to that, has uh, these Cajun influences as well. So by that, you mean randomness and... Um, the ability yeah, of, so, of the performer to make choices of what they're going to play and when. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from text scores to just sort of the uh, the use of silence within music. Yeah, a lot of different thing, ideas that Cage was exploring have been continued by uh, composers, especially uh, those of the Vondelweiser group. We talked about Vondelweiser music briefly in one of our earliest episodes with New Yorker music critic Alex Ross, and I'll put a link in the show notes to that. There will also be a link to Irritable Hedgehog Records. This has to be one of the greatest label names I've ever heard. You founded this with David McIntyre a few years ago? Yes. And the goal of this record label is to release these recordings of minimalist music. Yeah, we really just started... Um... Well, it all goes back to a performance uh, that I gave of Tom Johnson's An Hour for Piano. Um, I just did it sort of as a whim. Uh, as I was a graduate student, there weren't a lot of people that showed up. Uh, but, they, you know, at the time, only uh, Frederick Jevsky's recording uh it was the only recording that existed of the piece and uh, due to limits of uh, LP technology had to be played too fast uh, so that it was 54 minutes or something instead of 60. And that's cheating. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, you wouldn't think that, you know, 10% difference would be such a big difference, but uh, it, it really affects how the piece uh, feels. And so we thought, well, we can do one that's, 
exactly at 60 minutes, which is what uh, Tom Tom wanted. Um, and so, yeah, we really just started with one project in mind. And we, we, we just wanted to put this out there and see what happens. And uh, it, it's just continued to build and grow from there. And you've currently got, let's see, I'm looking at your website, a dozen more than a dozen recordings out. A lot of them are by you. And you've got an ensemble, great name, another great name, the the Ensemble of Irreproducible Outcomes as well. Yeah, and so that's that's Dave's ensemble uh, with Ryan Oldham and Brian Padovic. So uh, uh, and various instruments, but mostly clarinet, trumpet, and, and bass. Uh, a lot of improvised music, and they each write music for the ensemble. And your record label has a certain amount of success for a small indie label. You've been written up, I'm pretty sure, in the New Yorker and the New York Times, if not other things. You were on the BBC a few months ago for your latest recording. Is it because you're doing music that's niche that no one else is recording that is good enough for people to notice? That certainly helps. Uh, yeah, it, it really resonates because there are people who are curious about this type of music. And, and you mentioned Vondelweiser, which is a sort of a movement coming out of Germany. There's a lot of silence in that music. But this is still, this is avant-garde. This is like lower Manhattan type of music. It's not in the mainstream yet. And you've managed to get some of this music out of the galleries and into the public sphere very, very efficiently. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's, um, and I, th I think in some respects there haven't, um, until more recently been, it hasn't been, this music hasn't been performed and recorded as much, uh, stateside, you know, there's been, True. you know, this stuff has been around quite a bit in Europe. And so uh, in some respects, uh, maybe I have the advantage there that, you know, um, use a sort of, I, 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 there, there have always been people doing it, but maybe I've been on the leading edge a little bit. So you said you're not recording Philip Glass. Are you not interested in that type of minimalism? Oh, I, I wouldn't say that I'm not interested. Um, I, especially some of his uh, early stuff, I, I just adore. It's just, you know, there there are plenty of people recording and playing that, and you know, my my own personal instincts have been to, uh, you know, if a lot of people are doing something, I'm just going to shy away from it. That's just my personality, and it, yeah, recently it served me well. In in recent years, there has been a, a sudden growth of solo piano albums of Philip Glass's music. And even on the major labels, you know, Decca Deutsch Gramophone and all that. I don't know why. Maybe it's that these are young pianists who grew up with this music in addition to the Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms that they were playing. And for them, it's a big change. But every, one, every couple of months now, I see a new recording of Philip Glass music. And I love his early music, and I love his solo piano album. But, you know, six different recordings of that is... That's, that's enough repetition for me. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and part of it, you know, um, you know, boils down to economics, I imagine, where, you know, he he's a huge name and is recognizable, you know, outside of the normal classical sphere. And so, uh, you know, if you're going to be putting money into a recording and taking more of a financial risk in some ways that that makes a little bit more sense. I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to say it's bad. I'm not going to, you know, to each their it's own. It's the record I'm, business. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it is what it is. It's interesting. You just used the word classical as if this is classical music. And we had this discussion with Alex Ross, like, what is classical music? Would you consider the music that you play and record to be classical music? Uh, yes, it, I, I, I see it as continuing the traditions that have emerged over the centuries. You know, I'm still even though I don't play uh, in normal concert settings necessarily, you know, I'm 
uh, I'm still working around the the format, and you know, I, I I'm working within these traditions and this history and performance practice, you know, even as we, as, even as it evolves and we push against boundaries, et cetera. So some of this music you mentioned, um, Tom Johnson's An Hour for Piano, this is music that's been around for a while, but I know you're also on the lookout for new music. How do you find new music like this? How do, is there a chat room where all these avant-garde <laughs> composers hang out or is there like a bar in Brooklyn someplace where they all get together? <laughs> if there's a chat room, I think it's Twitter. Um, <laughs> you know, when I was first getting involved with Twitter, I mean, I really would, you know, just search around the who to follow because uh, I was following a lot of composers and I would, you know, um, I found Adrian Knight via Twitter, um, whose, you know, obsessions I commissioned and recorded. Um, and, and, and what I would do is, you know, when I found a new composer's website, I would go to the longest piece that they had written um, and, and see what that was like before exploring more. Um, but the process, you know, I, I get ideas from a variety of places. It was a friend, Scott Unrine, who's a composer who first recommended your cries music to me. Um, I, you know, I, I've done crowdsourcing. I'll just post on Facebook. What music should I be doing? You know, recently, you know, uh, I've been going through the databases of w uh, women composers, uh, you know, trying to find new composers that way. I get a lot of scores that are just sent to me now. Uh, so yeah, it, it just, yeah, both. I'm trying to be both proactive in, in looking for new music, but, you know, I'm also starting to get a lot of cool stuff that's coming my way as well. You said you look for the longest piece, and that's kind of interesting. One of your recordings that really grabbed me was Dennis Johnson's November that you recorded a few years ago. It's about five hours long. Mm -hmm. That's long. It is, yeah. Um, so, and and I actually encountered the piece pretty early as I began exploring, you know, minimal music. Uh, it was in 2009, I was hope, helping to host a conference, the Society for Minimalist Music, you know, had a conference. We were hosting it in Kansas City where I was a grad student and Kyle Gann had just sort of uh, re, uh, recreated, it's not the right word. He had uh, sort of brought it back to... Yeah, he had done a transcription. He had also worked with Dennis Johnson to sort of... Uh, piece together the score which had largely been lost and you know the sort of mythical piece and so uh kyle gann and sarah cahill did a performance of the work uh taking turns about every hour in 2009 and you know i had been sort of interested in it and you know it was just sitting sitting around but you know initially it was just kind of like well i've done a piece that's an hour long, what's it like to play for four and a half or five hours? You know, it's just sort of a curiosity uh, from that standpoint. Um, and, and, and I really fell in love with it. And we were really fortunate. Um, we, we, again, through Twitter, made a connection uh, through the label Penultimate Press out of the UK. Uh, and we were able to um, partner with them to put the recording out because uh, yeah, just the production costs alone for a four CD set were much greater than anything we've done before. Um, yeah. So it was, it was a much bigger financial risk that we were taking. And yeah, a, a lot of pieces just really came together for that. And, and I've gotten to perform it in some really cool places and yeah, it, it, it really is just a wonderful, beautiful piece to perform. And um, th there was one performance I gave of it, uh, 
you know, because my mind will wander a little bit over five hours, uh, where I, <laughs> where I thought, uh, you know, this, this really is wonderful. I get to just sit here and enjoy something beautiful for five hours, um, which, which, which isn't something we get the opportunity to do very often. What is it like to perform that? I can imagine, I mean, I've seen some very long works. In fact, I saw Einstein on the beach in, what was it, 1984 at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And I remember in the notes or the program or whatever, it said, feel free to get up and walk around and leave and come back whenever you want. It's demanding for the audience, but it's incredibly demanding for the performer who, well, let's just say, doesn't get an intermission to go do necessary things. So how do you do this? Do you have a catheter or something? No. So that's everyone's favorite question. Um, that's the only piece where I do, um, you know, I just limit fluid intake, um, you know, and I actually, uh, if I can get a hold of something, I like to have a couple just peanut butter sandwiches and whole wheat, something that's going to stick with me. So I'm not going to get hungry. Um, although I was so worried about it, I will say when I performed it, uh, in New York in 2013. It was my first performance in New York, you know, and so I was just panicked that, yeah, something would go wrong and I would have to exit. Um, so I actually started the piece where I was a little bit thirsty. I thought, okay, that'll be okay. Well, that was, that was a terrible <laughs> mistake and I, and I won't ever do that again. But, uh, no, I, I joke with the audience that, you know, I'm the only person that has to stay here the whole time. <laughs> um, and, and, and the performance experience, uh, it varies a bit, but, you know, it, you know, it tends to be the first hour just flies by. Um, you know, I'm always amazed how quickly that goes. Uh, the second hour tends to drag a little bit. Um, and then things pick back up as I move into improvisation. Uh, there's usually a point, you know, maybe about three and a half hours in where I think, oh, God, there's another hour and a half to go. How am I going to do this? So that's like um, the wall that runners hit in a marathon. Well, I, I've done a little bit of long distance running. I've never more than a half marathon. Uh, so maybe yeah, maybe I'm channeling that a little bit. Uh, although, yeah, having done that, I can say this is a lot easier. Um, <laughs> yeah, there, are, there are some things that... Um, you know, I mean, the biggest drain of, of course, just mental energy that um, that I can maintain focus. Um, and, and and part of it is that I do uh, let my mind wander and focus on different things to a certain extent. Uh, I haven't done much meditative practice, but, you know, when I have, you know, it's that idea that, OK, you know, I'm not going to be able to focus on this entirely for the whole time. And so my mind's going to go somewhere else and that's OK. And just sort of bring it back gently um, on the on the physical side. You know, uh, I just try and especially my shoulders, um, try and be aware of my posture and, you know, just allow myself to you know, <laughs> to, to move about a little bit and keep everything nice and relaxed so that tension doesn't build up too much at any point. Um, yeah, but if, if there's one sort of big thing I'm trying to focus on the whole time, um, it, it, it is this idea of forward momentum, uh, as silly as that may sound. Um, I, I try to be really hyper-conscious of it ever the piece ever feeling like it's coming to a stop because I do try to ride that edge where it's just almost imperceptibly moving forward and moving into ideas and the arc continues. Um, but I but I'm very much aware of this idea where the momentum feels like it, it it's coming to a halt 
um, and making sure that I, I move it forward from there and that, that we continue to go ahead, even as, you know, I'm creating this space where, yeah, there's a lot of freedom to explore and it really doesn't feel like a lot's happening. In a way, what you're doing is you've got this stream of music that's going on for a certain amount of time and I can listen to some of it and then go out and then come back. And even if I don't catch it all, it's not like I've missed three scenes in a movie. The, the music is similar enough from one section to another that when you go back to hear it again, you're hearing something that's not that different from what you heard when you left. Sure. It's not something that, yeah, you're going to miss a crucial piece of the plot and the rest of it's going to be ruined. At the same time, um, you know, in working with presenters, you know, I've been asked, well, you know, can people come and go? And I say, sure, absolutely. But we need to be really clear that the start time is, you know, we're starting at seven. I don't want people to feel like they can just show up at nine. You don't want people just coming in in the middle for an hour. Right, because then something yeah. is lost. The music has created an, a situation where endurance for me and for the audience is important. That said, I, I treat this very differently from an endurance concert. You know, there are marathon concerts, you know, where we put a whole bunch of music on, you know, um, 24 hours of Bach know, or something. Right. Or or where, you know, a performer is saying, OK, I'm going to play this 12 hour concert, you know, and, and that then the focus, you know, or at least part of it becomes just the pure endurance of the performer. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the music. Yes, I perform long, long pieces and, that require endurance, but, you know, I, I hope it comes across as I'm doing it for the sake of this music. You know, I'm not putting November alongside, you know, six hours of other music or, I mean, not that I've seen anybody do that, but, you know, I, you know I'm not trying to make it about duration. It's not a gimmick. It, yeah. Right. It, uh, yeah, I hope. Yeah. So this has put a label on you of the guy who plays long pieces of piano music. How far can you go? I can't imagine something longer than November. But is your goal to just keep finding interesting pieces of music that are an hour or two hours long? Uh I'll say it was for a while, um, a goal, um, you know, for a while I really, really was there, you know, because I, I think, well, I mean, it, it, it's a huge risk for composers, period, you know, to to be to want to put out this music that, you know, and say, well, this is going to be an entire concert now. So you're, you're really going to have to be devoted to it. Uh, you know, yeah, it's hard to get someone to program it. Yeah, it's hard to program. It, it's expensive to commission, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I. I looked at composers who I thought would be interested in this, who maybe don't have the opportunity to do it uh, just because of simple logistics. And, and I, I'd say that's still something that's of interest to me. Um, but it, maybe I, I don't seek it out quite as actively as I used to. And maybe, again, because, you know, because I am getting a, a big label put on my back as the guy who does this. So, um no, and which is it is what it is. I enjoy it, and you know if, if that's if, if I get to be known, sure, that's fine. I'll, I'll take it. So what's next? Oh, that's that's a really good question. Uh, well, in the most immediate future, uh, I've got a another CD coming out here on September eighth uh, on a new uh, new label for me called Recital, uh, music by Michael Vincent Waller. Uh, so some piano solo and as well as some piano and cello music. So this is the first time I've actually recorded 
with someone else. I got to work with the incredible Seth Parker Woods, just a fantastic cellist. Um, yeah, and I hope we have more collaborations in the future. As far as what's next sort of on the hedgehog, oh, well, no, I'll tell you about other projects because I've, I've gotten really involved uh, in things that aren't solo piano music recently. Um, so I'm, I'm working with uh, 20 other performers right now to put out a composition by Jörg Frey, his uh, Buch der Rama und Zeiten, uh, his book of space and times. Well, now I have to translate the German. Uh, I got the German right. So what it is, is so it's a book. It's meant for a duo. Um, so there are there's one sort of open score. He's got a couple electronic parts, but generally it's like, okay, I've got a piano. I can choose from four piano parts and I, I know a violist. So I'll grab a piano part. He'll play the viola part. It's 55 minutes long, you know, and we set our stopwatches and go. So there are a lot of different parts to it. Um, and, and I thought, because I just just a crazy whim. I thought, well, you know, could we possibly just record each of these separately since, you know, it really, they're all just sort of timed out, you know, uh, parts uh, and then stitch them together and see what every possible combination is, which yields 253 combinations. Uh, so I emailed her. Long. And, uh, yes. So the album, the album, and I'm putting air quotes around that, um, would end up all, all 253 parts of 55 minutes each comes out to over nine days worth of music. And so, uh, I reached out to Jörg, um, and I thought, well, what do you, what do you think about this crazy sort of complete collection of an idea? You know, I said, take your time and in good Vondelweiser fashion, he got back to me a few months later, um, and gave the thumbs up. Um, and so, yeah, so I've actually been piecing this together since the beginning of the year. Uh, and, and we're starting to get to the point where, you know, I've got everybody on board for it. I've got an, recordings are starting to happen so here you know hopefully before the end of the year uh we'll be able to start putting you know some of these combos out so yeah i'm i'm really excited about that it's going to be a huge undertaking and uh and we're going to take our time with it i said you know it's probably going to take a, a couple of years before we finally get this all put together and put out but yeah i've got the website in place it's just uh it's just waiting for music and and so you can click through and just choose your combinations or you, you can get random combination, which is lovely. And uh, yeah, so that's really exciting. What, what is this scored for? What, what instruments? The parts we have, accordion, bass, clarinet, bass, flute, cello, clarinet, flute, guitar, four percussion parts, four piano parts. There's one that's just sounds. Uh, I have two tape parts uh, that Jörg did, uh, trombone, trumpet, violin, viola, and voice. And so this it gets combined in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. So we're just going to take every, every duo right. possibility. Um, oh, so just, each, each piece is a duo. Correct. Yeah. So it, okay. it's not, you know, it couldn't be, you know, all 23 parts combined, you know, it's just, it's, it's just the two put together. And I think our listeners will remember that just three minutes ago, you said you weren't looking for very long pieces yet <laughs> you're doing something. There's going to be nine days worth of music. Well, it's but just, no, what's, what's interesting is that you are doing the whole 
combinatory thing where people get to pick and choose and, and music like that can be really fascinating. Well, yeah. It, and, and I hope it, yeah, it becomes a, a, and I imagine there will be some completists. Well, <laughs> I say, I say that almost derogatory as if I weren't putting this whole thing together. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there will be some people who will want to listen to every combination, but yeah, I do hope it, you know, it's just sort of an interesting sort of interactive experience where, okay, let's try piano four and clarinet and see what that sounds like. Um, yeah, it, it's something to, again, just enter into it and explore um, as opposed to, yeah, just sort of digesting, you know, <laughs> the complete, uh, the complete work, if you will. And just before we wrap up, I would like to mention that your latest release on Irritable Hedgehog is what, two, two and a half hours long. It is called The Four Pillars Appearing from the Equal D Under Resonating Apparitions of the Eternal Process in the Midwinter Starfield 16810. And yes. this is a piece of music where you have managed to play only one single note, but in every octave. Yeah, so this was a commissioned. Uh, I commissioned the piece from Randy Gibson, who, if you couldn't tell from the title, is as a longtime student of Lamont Young. And uh, I approached him years ago about working together on something. But of course, the big problem, or logistical problem, is that he works with just intonation and I play the piano. So we've got to, yeah, the, these are two generally incompatible things. Yes, you can tune a piano to just intonation, uh, but then if you want to perform it <laughs> in multiple places, you know. It, it has it's to just be retuned one, for each performance, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, just, it's just one more hurdle to getting performances that, you know, it, it just makes life more difficult. So I approached him and I said, if you ever want to do anything for, you know, a regularly tuned piano, I'm totally game. And what he came up with then, which, you know, I've said I, I was skeptical of at first, um, but if to my credit, I didn't tell him I was skeptical and I just went along with everything he said is, yes, I just play the D's of the piano. So we have octaves. And then what he does is he uses electronic filtering and processing to extract uh, from the rich sonority of the piano, the overtones of the chords and the just intonation that he likes. So yes, I'm only playing the seven Ds of the piano, but because I'm working with live electronics, in some ways it feels like I'm playing a, a different instrument, if, if that makes sense. You know, I, you yeah, know the sounds it, get it, altered and manipulated a bit by the electronics. Right. And and the the electronics themselves go through a variety of processes, uh, building up to what actually is the loudest thing I've ever played. You know, in most in some ways, most dramatic. Um, you know, so over the course of three and a half hours, that's changing as well. So so yes, the you know the the shtick and what everyone's picking. It's not a shtick. It's it's a it's a solution to a problem. But what you yeah. know you pick up and what becomes the headline is yeah I'm only playing these seven notes which all happen to be D's. But yeah it it the well this got you a lot of attention when the recording was released. It did well I, and um I I was very again just fortunate you know there there have been people that uh, Seth Coulter Walls who did the big piece in the Times. Uh, you know, I know has been very interested uh, in Brandy's music for for quite a while. You know, so it was a nice sort of confluence of events where, yeah, we could get some press around this. And yeah, it makes for a great headline. Pianist only plays one note, you know, for three and a half hours. 
Um, but you know, as you know, talking to the audience members afterwards, it's like, boy, if you hadn't told me you were only playing one note, yeah. I wouldn't have known that because yeah. you know, and yeah, like I said, it really feels like I'm I'm playing a piano and electronics. It, it's a very full experience you know, beyond just those seven pitches. Andy, I want to thank you for spending this day with us. Everyone do check out some of the links in the show notes because really this music is fascinating. Andy, thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's time to present our next tracks. The music we'll be listening to shortly after the show. Kirk, what have you got ready to go? For my next track this week, I'm picking something that is probably as far away from Andy Lee's minimalist piano music as possible. It's the complete music of Carl Ruggles. Ruggles was a New England composer, contemporary of Charles Ives back in the early 20th century, and he didn't write much music. In fact, this two-CD set contains almost all of his music. At the time, it was called Complete, and then someone came out with another disc called The Uncovered Ruggles, which were a number of bits and pieces, mostly for piano, this set was originally released on Columbia Records back in the 1980s. It was conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas, and it had long been out of print, and it was re-released a few years ago on a smaller label. I discovered this music, I think it was around 1982. I happened on a documentary about Ruggles on PBS, and this was my first exposure to violently atonal music. Now, I say that as a warning, but it's not atonal in the sense that it's painful to listen to. If you like Charles Ives, I think you'll find Carl Ruggles' music quite interesting. Some of the music is vocal, some of it is for solo piano, some for brass ensemble. And the big work, um, Ruggles' longest work, is called Sun Treader. It's a large orchestral work. It's about 16 minutes long. And that's what sold me, and that's what had me go search out this album back in the 80s. Uh, I would say it's to orchestral music what Charles Ives' Concord Sonata is to piano music, but it's a lot shorter and much more concentrated. So whether you want minimalism, you check out Andy Lee's recordings, or whether you want some really challenging yet entertaining atonal music, you've got a lot of choices. What about you, Doug? I had a hankering recently for David Bromberg. David Bromberg and the various incarnations of backup bands he had was very popular throughout the 70s. He didn't have a hit on the radio, but he was played a lot by progressive FM stations, and that's where I'd hear him. Bromberg is a multi-instrumentalist, but on most of his stuff from the 70s, he sticks with guitar and vocals, fiddle occasionally. His music is blues-based, but he incorporated pop, folk, jazz, and rock into his mostly acoustic-oriented repertoire, and humor, too. Some of his songs are pretty funny. So anyway, after his heyday in the 70s, he semi-retired to Delaware and made a living as an infrequent recording artist and performer, and mostly he made his living with violin sales and repair. And I think for a while his stuff wasn't even available on CD, so I eventually forgot about trying to fill my library with, with CD reissues. Well, most all of his recordings are available nowadays, and I landed on a release recently, a re-release of two of his albums, Reckless Abandon and Bandit in a Bathing Suit, which both have archetypical Bromberg songs on them, even a couple of live cuts. His live albums are a lot of fun, too. I may actually wait to listen to this until Sunday brunch. You know what I mean? It's good Sunday brunch music. David Bromberg and the dual release, Reckless Abandon and Bandit in a Bathing Suit, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. 
If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.